You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 40, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. Today's topic will be prior authorization. Now, you may or may not be aware of that if you're a patient, but basically prior authorization is a process whereby insurance companies look to restrict the care or the selection of um, treatments, whether they're medications or uh, physical treatments like a surgery or physical therapy, for instance, of patients uh, through a process where physicians have to justify the changes or the recommendations they're making. For instance, you might make a recommendation for a medication that a patient should be on, and there may be something in a protocol or an algorithm that the insurance company has that says that the patients have to pass through steps one through three first, maybe get an imaging exam, maybe go to physical therapy first. And anyway, this changes the way medications are and procedures are done in this country. And what is ordinarily seen by the physicians is a restriction to care. So for instance, if I order a test like, let's say, an MRI, I need to justify it and it will be initially denied by the insurance company. I then have to contact the insurance company and provide my reasons for the MRI. They may then deny it again. And so what happens, you have this long process where you can spend days sometimes delaying treatment and appropriate care, oftentimes, uh, in a process that ultimately will end up in a decision that it's allowed by the insurance company. I think they raised somewhere around 90%. Numbers vary wildly throughout the country, but primarily people think that things get authorized eventually by insurance companies, for the most part, as long as it's not an experimental treatment. But there can be a long, painful process to get there. And so the insurance companies put these up as barriers, I suppose. In some ways, they want to make sure there's appropriate treatment to their patients. They're the ones footing the bill, after all. And so that they have control over this process, but it does cost a lot of money in the sense that practices have to hire extra people to do this. And so this can be very, very time-consuming and, again, very expensive. It drives up the cost of care. And essentially, you've added nothing to the process except delays and more expense. My guest today is Dr. Mark Lopatin, who's a rheumatologist in private practice in Pennsylvania. 
He's an experienced practitioner and has written extensively on prior authorization and a number of other medical issues. He's very active within his state medical society and with a number of other societies or organizations that advocate for patients and patient care and also physicians and how they want to practice. All the links and the articles mentioned in the show, as well as some episodes that I had had prior to the Paradox, will be linked in the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 040. Finally, I'd like to encourage you, if you're not already, to subscribe to The Paradox so that you get every episode when it comes out, and to visit theparadox.com where you can sign up for the email list where you get alerted with new episodes coming out, and also any new blog posts that I might have, which I've had, I think, one or two before. But without further ado, Dr. Mark Lopatin and Preauthorization. Enjoy. Welcome to Paradox. Usual host, Dr. Eric Larson. I'm here with my guest today, Dr. Mo- Mark Lopatin. He's a rheumatologist in private practice in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. He's the current chairman of the Montgomery County Medical Society and serves on the board of directors of the Pennsylvania Medical Society and the Pennsylvania Medical Society PAC, the Political Action Committee. He has a strong interest in the medical legal arena, has worked to bridge the gap between lawyers and doctors, as chair of the Montgomery County Medical Legal Committee and the Montgomery County Task Force on Mediation. His desire to bring disparate opinions together led him to organize a meeting between leadership of the AMA and a number of national grassroots physician advocacy groups. He's a member of the National Physicians Council for Healthcare Policy, the AMA, the American College of Rheumatology, Physicians Working Together and Practicing Physicians of America, for whom he has spoken at a national level. He's also been a leader in coordinating healthcare town halls in order to educate the public as to how healthcare policies affect the care that patients receive. He lives in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, with his wife and two poodles. He has two daughters. Um, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thank you. It's my privilege. Well, um, I didn't intentionally mean to have so many rheumatologists on in a row, but it's, it's just, that's the way it just kind of worked out. But I would like for you to just briefly describe your practice, uh, where you're located, um, sort of what the private practice setting is for you, and, and how long you've been at it. Okay. Well, I've been in this practice for 27 years. Uh, it is a 10-man uh, rheumatology practice, wow. strictly rheumatology. We're in the northern suburbs of Philadelphia, about 10 to 15 miles north of Philly. Um, we have one of the largest rheumatology practices uh, on the East Coast. Um, we staff nurse practitioners, um, and uh, it's strictly private practice. We're not affiliated with any hospital. We're affiliated with a hospital, but we're not on, um, owned by any hospital. So you're like on you. You mean like your medical staff at a couple of hospitals? You have admitting privileges if you had to use them. Right, we have admitting privileges and we see patients in the hospital, but uh, we're not bound by hospital policies uh, in any way, shape, or form. So that seems like a really large clinic. I assume you do your own infusions and um, at the at your office. Yes, we do. We uh, have uh, four different offices, um, and we infuse patients at all of them. Um, one of the issues that comes up is getting approval for infusions from insurance companies, right. uh, which is the subject for tonight. Right. So that's it. And, and so today I've been looking for someone to talk about prior authorizations. It's something that I think most most patients are aware of. Physicians are acutely aware of them. And depending on your profession, you may be more acutely aware than others. I'm an anesthesiologist, and so I don't deal... With, specifically with the prior authorizations, because the patients I see have already been through the process. They've already been approved for whatever procedure it is. Uh, so that process is sort of, you know, two steps before they see me. But I know my wife's a, pri- a pediatrician, and, and so she deals with prior authorizations. 
not quite as much as others might uh, who are sending people to specialists more often or um, using more medications. But the prior authorization process is, I mean, why don't you briefly talk about what it is and then we'll kind of go into sort of the problems with it, although it may become self-evident when you explain what it, the process is. Well, basically what happens is um, I see a patient in the exam room and I make a determination that they either need a treatment or a particular study. Uh, depending on the treatment or study, I have to submit that to their insurance company for permission uh, to get approval where the insurance company will say they will cover the cost of said procedure or said treatment. Um, what happens then is if they approve it, we're done. If they deny it, um, then the next step is usually a letter of medical necessity. And what happens with the letter of medical necessity is I have to write a letter explaining why I want to do whatever it is I want to do, get an x-ray or, or whatever. Um, if that's denied, then typically I have to do a peer-to-peer. -peer. Now, what happens with a peer-to-peer, I must call the insurance company and speak with one of their doctors. Generally, it's not someone in my specialty. It's not a rheumatologist. And in fact, the most recent peer-to-peer -peer I did was not even a doctor. It was a nurse reviewer. Hmm. I then have to convince the doctor why the procedure or um, medicine that I want to prescribe is appropriate for this particular patient. Um, typically, the peer-to-peer -peer will follow preordained guidelines laid out by the insurance company. Um, if they're not in my specialty, they may not even understand the guidelines, but they will follow them, <laughs> and they may choose to deny it. Typically, I'm not given an alternative. Sometimes I am. Sometimes that alternative is not appropriate, uh, in which case I'm left trying to explain to my patient that they can't get the treatment that I think is appropriate for them. And so, to be clear, with the prior authorizations, are we talking about commercial payers, or are we talking about also the government payers like Medicare and Medicaid? Uh, it's more commercial payers, but it applies to government, too. They have the right to deny uh, treatment if they think it's not appropriate. So the prior authorization still exists with them, too. Yes. I was going to say, to give you an example of the kind of, of situation that occurs, I had a patient come to see me with um, ankle pain. He'd had six weeks of ankle pain. He had previously been thought to have gout by another doctor, then previously thought to have cellulitis by another doctor. He had failed treatments for both of them. He came to see me with a tender, swollen ankle. Um, X-rays were negative, and I ordered an MRI. Um, my staff told me it was denied. Uh, and I said, why? And they said, well, he needs to have had six weeks of pain and a negative X-ray. And I said, well, this is easy. He's had six weeks of pain and a negative X-ray. So I called the peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, fully expecting an easy thing that they just didn't realize that he'd had an X-ray. And I was told, no, um, we know that. He needs to go to physical therapy first. Oh. And I said, wait a minute. I don't know what's wrong with his ankle. How do I send him to physical therapy? I said, well, that's what the guidelines say. I asked the question, are you a rheumatologist? No. I said, is this about the cost of an MRI? No, this is what's best for the patient. I said, please explain to me, because you're asking me to commit malpractice, please explain to me why uh, physical therapy is appropriate. The answer I got was as follows, quote, some patients get better with physical therapy, end quote. I said, you have to be kidding me. I said, that's your rationale for, for going to physical therapy and not getting an MRI? 
what I ended up doing was I sent my patient to physical therapy. I said, I want you to go once. I don't want you to do anything, any weight bearing on that ankle. I don't want you to do anything that produces pain. I want you to call me that night and tell me how difficult it was and how you couldn't do it. He did that. We got the MRI. He had an occult fracture. Yeah, good thing um, he didn't do anything. The center of physical therapy was absolute malpractice. Um, I sent him to ortho. They casted him. Two months later, he was fine. Yeah, that's so crazy. the problems are, you know, the problems are with phys- with prior auth are uh, procedures are being denied or approved by someone who's never examined the patient, following cookbook cookie cutter guidelines um, that may or may not apply. Um, as I've said repeatedly, um, can you imagine if Baskin Robbins got rid of thirty of their flavors because they determined that most people like vanilla? Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's. I mean, just to, I guess, to make clear, if it's not clear to the listeners right now, so prior authorization is essentially a, a means by the insurance company, the third-party payer, not by the patient themselves or by the physician who's examining the patient, but to uh, it's it's a way to, I suppose, initially instituted to control costs. It's a way of saying we want to make sure that all the tests or medications that are being used are appropriate, and so we're going to have a process that you have to meet certain criteria, or as you mentioned, you meet some follow some guidelines so that you're not, you know, you don't hurt your knee and the first thing you get is MRI. He's like, well, you know, did you put ice on it or whatever, right? And so it's it's way basically a way, I think initially the thought was is a way of controlling costs for the for the insurance company and to avoid unneeded tests under the guise oftentimes of, you know, preventing harm to the patient by having unnecessary procedures or, you know, laboratories. Absolutely. I'll give you a prime example the other way. There is a drug called Duexis which is a combination of Motrin and Pepsid. Motrin for a month's supply costs about $50. Pepsid for a month's supply costs $50. Duexis, which puts the two meds together in one pill, costs (laughs) $2,000. So needless to say, the insurance company appropriately does not want anybody writing for Duexis. Understandable and appropriate. So some of what they do is very appropriate uh, in trying to prevent unnecessary procedures. Somebody with one day of back pain, as you alluded to, that the doctor wants to order an MRI. But the message that it sends is, is a very, very harmful one. And that message is that we know better than you what's best for your patient. And it sends a message of distrust to physicians um, that we don't know what we're doing. Now, granted, in some cases, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, the prior auth really does help patients, prevents them maybe from getting unnecessary procedures or even dangerous procedures. But the price we pay for that is is very high. There's a tremendous amount of discontent with prior auth. In fact, the AMA recently conducted a survey um, looking at this. And just a couple of things stand out. 65, this is an, a survey of over a thousand physicians and basically 65% of physicians report they wait at least one day to get the prior auth approved. 26% report waiting at least three days. That's one in four patients have to wait at least three days. Um, in terms of, of frequency of care delays, 91% of physicians report delays in care. 28% of physicians report a serious adverse event. And 91% of physicians report a significant or somewhat 
negative impact on patients. 75% of physicians report that prior auth leads to treatment abandonment at times. So think about that. You have a patient who needs a procedure and they abandon it because the prior auth process is either too long or too delayed or whatever. So there's a tremendous dis dis um, discontent amongst physicians. 86% um, of physicians report the burden on their practice is high or extremely high. Mm -hmm. And the costs are astounding with some estimates across the country as somewhere between 23 and $31 billion each year with an average of 55000 to 68000 per practice. Right. Or per physician per year. I mean, these are huge numbers um, in the names of preventing the, the small amount of, of, of cases which are inappropriate. Right. So, you know, the data is, is striking. In terms of how physicians view this, yeah, it's a, it's a, for our state medical society here in Michigan. That's going to be a legislative, I, I suppose you'd say, focus for the next year or two in the session, because the prior authorization, and people are asking, well, you know, what are the costs that are driving up? I mean, it there's clearly a frustration, a time wasted for for the physician to try and justify these things that they know, or you know, that's in the proper progression. Well, but the bigger yeah. thing is that. I mean, at least with my wife's practice, they had to hire one person. Basically, one person's job is just to do prior authorizations when it comes to switching medications or, um, you know, basically it's medications for them. So it's, if you think about the cost, and, and it's something that it's a cost borne by the, by the physician in their practice or, you know, hospital systems and employee practice or whatever, and it's not, it's not a borne by the, the insurance providers who are the ones mandating this, basically. Uh, and... It caught, and it, it doesn't really save anyone money except cause delays. No, there are some studies that actually document that it costs more to do the prior auth. Um, there was a study um, that was done that looked at diabetics. Uh, this was in the Journal of Managed Care and Specialty Pharmacy um, that looked at the cost of denying care for diabetics versus approving care. And what they found is that the costs were actually greater when they denied care mm -hmm. than when they approved care. So there's, there's some data that suggests that. But the, the biggest thing is, in my mind, is the emotional impact on physicians and, and more importantly on patients yeah. in terms of someone else running the show who's not, whose primary focus is not on that individual patient. Um, they're not in the exam room but they're going to de declare what can and cannot be done and the need for physician to justify what we do. Um, we spend more time justifying what we do these days, not just with prior auth, but with electronic health records and so forth. It's just one more thing that we have to prove our worth, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and it, it's tough. I was naive. My first letter of medical necessity I wrote was as follows. It said, Dear Insurance Company, this letter will serve to verify the medical necessity for Enbrel for my patient so-and-so. Obviously, if I didn't think it was medically necessary, I wouldn't have written the prescription in the first place. <laughs> because in my naivete, I thought that my saying it was necessary was all that was needed. I was wrong. It was denied. And since then, I realized I have to prove everything. 
It's tough to practice medicine when you have to prove everything that you do and justify everything you do. Well, it's certainly hard to do it efficiently, and do, you know, because you have a lot of patients you're trying to see, and you're spending a lot of time doing. Th- you're you're basically diagnosing someone twice, right? You're 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 making the decision what needs to be done, and then you have to go back and base and write it all down, or and send it to another third party. And you got to imagine at some level too. I mean, there's not only is there a cost for having someone in your office who's in charge of prior authorizations and calling and making sure that they've that you know the surgery that was scheduled uh, is still is finally approved, but there's someone on the other end of that insurance company. In fact, probably a, an army of people who are also employed doing the same thing, right? That they're and it's for a process that probably ultimately is not going to save that much money. And you would think that from insurance companies, if they've got they've got all kinds of data on on physicians, they can probably pretty quickly figure out who's over prescribing or who is inappropriately um, ordering tests or procedures. And you could just kind of crack down on those few individuals rather than trying to encompass everybody in this large net that ends up probably just be having, a, you know, it's like any sort of screening test. It's not that helpful oftentimes. And so, I don't know, it just seems like a, it seems like a veiled attempt to control costs when it, when it probably doesn't do that and just waste everybody's time on both sides. Well, I got to figure it saves them, uh, saves money for them. Um, realistically, I mean, insurance companies are smart. They wouldn't do that if it cost them more money. I like to think that. So I got to think it's saving them money. I got to think in some circumstances it helps patients. But again, the focus is on populations rather than individual right. patients. Yes. As a physician, I'm responsible for that individual patient who sits in front of me. Um, that person is the most important person to me and will continue to be so until the next person comes in. And then they become the next, most important person in my practice. Um, I can't make decisions um, for individual patients, which, you know, based on what's best for my practice as a whole. Yeah. Um, but that's what the insurance company d- does. And another critical aspect of this is while the insurance company makes decisions based on populations, they have no accountability to the individual patient. Right. So like in my example of the MRI with the broken fibula, that's on me. If I send him to physical therapy and he gets hurt worse, that's my fault. Your insurance company has no culpability in that regard. So they're free to make decisions without having to answer to the patient in any way, shape, or form. That's wrong. Yeah, they have no responsibility for the outcomes if, uh, if something goes wrong. So who makes these guidelines? I mean, presumably these are developed in, on some of a by specialists within the field, or is this... I mean, how do you think the, the they guidelines are formed? The guidelines are formed by specialty organizations. Okay. Um, you know, in, in my case, the American College of Rheumatology um, creates guidelines for the management of specific diseases, and that's they're appropriate. But they are guidelines, right. and they are being used as mandates. And there's a difference between guidelines and mandates, um, and they should be considered. You should not get you know an MRI after one day of back pain. That's appropriate. Um, but there are certain circumstances where maybe that MRI at one day is appropriate. Right, exactly. You know, a sudden injury to the back with uh, numbness and weakness in the leg where you're worried about a herniated disc, maybe it is appropriate in that setting if the patient's paralyzed to find out what's going on right then and there. So the guidelines should be that, just guidelines. They shouldn't be the be-all and end-all in terms of uh, managing patients. And you mentioned something interesting too, when it comes to the prior authorization, and you have to get approval from 
the physicians, I mean, mostly, well, I think probably all these insurance companies have physicians who are in charge on some level of the, the process. Uh, I don't know that they look at every single claim, but what is the, what is the process when you have someone who is not in the specialty? So they have no specialty knowledge of what you're doing. I would have no idea about anything with rheumatology. I mean, I'm familiar with joints <laughs> and the inflammatory process, but outside of that, I couldn't tell you which what your armamentarium of drugs should be and the order you should you should uh, use them and what kind of tests you should run. So I'm probably at the so I've I'm pretty much like a layperson almost looking at these guidelines. I mean, how do these? I mean, do they have especially for every everyone for look, the review process? No, in fact, when I do a, when I do a peer to peer, it's typically not in my same specialty. So the question then becomes, how convincing can I be in my argument? How stuck are they on the guidelines? Um, and they have to make that decision. What's interesting I'll share with you is that a medical director in California under oath admitted that he denied care without ever looking at the charts. He relied solely on the recommendations of the nurse reviewers. And he is denying care and never, never, um, never looking at the chart. Yeah. I mean, how can that be? Um, my feeling is that if a, an insurance company has the right to deny care based on cost, if they, Humira, for instance, is a very expensive drug. If they choose to not cover Humira under any circumstances because it's too expensive, they have every right to do that. Car insurance doesn't necessarily cover your windshield. Sure. So it doesn't cover everything. But if they're making a decision based on the medical facts of the case, or my conversation with them, that is a medical decision. They are making a medical decision. And in my opinion, I believe they should be held equally accountable for that medical decision, same as I am. Now, if those medical decisions are, are you know, well-formed and, and are appropriate, such as denying the MRI after one day of back pain, that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's fine. They're, they're practicing good medicine. But if they're going to deny care and my patient suffers as a consequence of them denying care, such as could have occurred with my patient with the broken fibula, then it's my feeling that they should be accountable for that and should be held to the same standards that I'm held to when I treat patients. I'm responsible for the medical decisions I make. I feel that they should be responsible for the medical decisions they make. Yeah, and actually I interviewed uh, an author a number of episodes ago, Dr. John Hunt, and he was discussing one of the kind of near the ends when he finally left, I guess he kind of left medicine is he started sending bills to the insurance company for his time spent on prior authorizations and justifying things. And like he, like a lawyer would <laughs> looking at um, what it, my mom has rheumatoid arthritis and she's had a, and in talking to my dad about the process, it's very confusing me. The, uh, how the order you, you get drugs, um, sometimes you have to start with like basic anti-inflammatories and you move to this drug and that drug, but you can't go to this drug because it's the wrong tier. Can you explain how that process works? I mean, for patients, physicians who might not be familiar with it. Well, well, basically in, rheumat in rheumatoid arthritis, we start with what's called a DMARD, a disease modifying anti-rheumatic drug. And these are drugs like Plaquenil, sulfasalazine, or methotrexate. Uh, typically if the patient fails them, we will move to a biologic. Here's where it gets interesting because um, 
the biologics, if you're talking, we usually start with a TNF inhibitor. And these are medicines like Enbrel, Remicade, Humira, Simzy, and Symphony. There are five of them. And they're all similar they're in, in efficacy. They're similar in safety. They're administered differently. Some are IVs. Some are self-injectable drugs. So there really isn't that much difference. What is different, however, is the cost factor. Um, and that depends on the relationship the insurance company has with the pharmaceutical company, or more specifically, the pharmacy benefit manager who can receive kickbacks from the manufacturer to make one drug a preferential drug. So let's just say the pharmacy benefit manager is receiving a kickback for, from the manufacturer of Enbrel and not receiving a kickback from the manufacturer of Humira. Lo and behold, when I want to put my patient on Humira, I'm told I have to go to Enbrel first. And again, that is strictly a cost measure. Mm -hmm. is it, am I ever told that? No, I'm simply told that Enbrel is a tier one drug and Humira is a tier two drug. Why? It's just the way it is. I mean, I've never heard an insurance company acknowledge the cost factor. And frankly, I would have a little bit more respect for them if they did. Sure. If In my peer-to-peer -peer that I described earlier, if the, the, the woman would have said to me, you know, we don't want you to do the MRI because it's too expensive. A, a lot of patients get better with physical therapy. We're trying to save the, the expense. I still would have viewed it as malpractice, but I would have had a lot more respect for owning up to what's really going on. And that's one of the problems with this is transparency, that when you do a peer-to-peer, -peer, you don't find out why the drug is, or, or the, the procedure is not approved. You may be told you have to do X, Y, and Z first. You may be told that, that another drug is a preferred drug, but you're never told why. You're told this is, these are the guidelines. This is what the guidelines measure. And you can ask to find it, the, you know, to explore the guidelines, but I don't have the time to start exploring on every single case why, in this case, Enbrel was a preferred drug. Um, I've not yet heard that, well, it's because this drug is safer or that procedure is viewed as unnecessary, mm -hmm. nor do I get alternatives, appropriate alternatives in terms of this. So um, a lot of times I'm left hanging with nothing to do with, for my patient. But the real killer for me is using Enbrel and Humira as an example. If I have a patient who has not received either of those two drugs, and the insurance company wants me to use one versus the other, I don't really care. They're equally effective, they're equally safe, it doesn't make a difference to me. But there are times when I've got a patient who's doing well on one of those drugs, right. and I'm told I have to switch. Maybe it's because there was a change in the kickbacks possibly, I'm not sure why, but all of a sudden, Enbrel's no longer a tier one drug, it's tier two, and now Humira is the tier one drug. So I'm told that I have to change my patient from a regimen which is working to another regimen which may or may not work. Right. Yeah. No. I'm, and I look at you know my, the way my mom's gone through the medications, and it's <clears throat> sometimes the one will lose efficacy after a while, will just no longer work, and so she switches to another. I can't imagine if she had one that was working to suddenly just pull her off and and, and just suddenly have to switch. I mean, it, it's a you know I suppose if you look at it from the market standpoint. You'd say you'd like you said it'd be it'd be at least more honest to say why there's there are these different tiers, and if the patient's got some sort of savings from that, I suppose then people would be okay with it, right? They'd say, well, these drugs both work well, they work the same, um, they work both as well, and one's just going to cost you hundred bucks less a month or something. People would probably be oh, okay, that's fine, uh, as opposed to just having this mysterious process. I suppose and you could make an argument maybe that 
because of the kickbacks or the rebates, or whatever they want to call them, from the pharmacy benefit managers, that there is a savings to the insurance company. So ultimately, there's savings in the premiums, and so your insurance is like you know a couple bucks less, maybe you know a month. Uh, but those savings are not probably enough that it's going to impact the patient, and and so now you're you know negatively affecting the patient when you don't need to and without any you know benefit to them. No, and and the kickbacks do not are not passed on to the patients, and that's one of the things that's being looked at at the federal government now is how to get those kickbacks passed on to patients so there are savings for patients. But there are other issues too. Using the Ambro Humer example, let's throw Remicade into the mix. Remicade is an IV drug. Enbrel and Humer are self-injectable drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, suppose the insurer tells me that I need to use Enbrel as a first-line agent before I can use Remicade. Okay, that's fine. But what if my patient is deathly afraid of giving themselves a needle? Or if their rheumatoid arthritis is so deforming that they can't adequately give themselves a needle? Mm-hmm. And I have to explain that and justify it. You know, it's hard to justify all the reasons on every single case, how it applies to this particular patient. Yeah, right. And, um, well, I mean, that's the prior authorization problem. And in the bio, I was reading about you doing the town halls. Can you explain what you're doing at the town halls? Because I imagine th- this process, prior authorization or pharmacy benefit manager is probably part of that as well. I mean, you know, when people think of town halls, they generally think of candidates doing, you know, for, for either – People coming back, the representatives coming back and have holding a town hall and kind of telling them what's going on in D.C., but what kind of town halls are you holding? Well, town halls were, were started by uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Marion Masson, and myself, a number of years ago with the idea of educating um, the public about some of the issues that are going on. Uh, and there are a whole slew of issues that are going on in medicine, the compromised care, electronic health records, scope of practice issues maintenance the certification issues. And the idea was to explain to people what's going on. More recently, um, Mary and I, we did them on our own a few years ago, but more recently we got some support, we got some funding, and we started doing them again. And these have been held throughout the country. Uh, the ones that we've done here have focused on uh, um, uh, direct primary care. Mm-hmm. We had one of our colleagues, Kim Corba, talk about direct primary care, uh, which takes the middleman out of the equation. Yeah. Now it's strictly doctor and patient. There is no prior authorization. The patient is the one who decides the cost, which is really a, a great idea. If you think about it, healthcare is the only field of endeavor where one party provides a service to another party, which is paid for by a third party, such that the consumer of the service and the, the uh, provider of the service, are, the person who pays for the service, are two different entities. Yeah. When you go into a restaurant, you order lobster, you can choose to order lobster for $50 knowing it's going to cost you more, or a hamburger for $10. You get to make that choice. But when the consumer and the purchaser are different individuals, they each have, each have a different agenda. The consumer wants to consume as much as possible. The purchaser wants to purchase as little as possible. There's the conflict. So direct primary care takes that out of the equation. Now, it's up to the individual patient. Do you want the better drug that's going to cost you more, or do you want the lesser drug that may not work as well, but it's going to cost you less? That's fine, but nobody else is making that decision. So that was one of the topics of interest. Uh, 
Marion spoke about uh, pharmacy benefit managers um, and the middlemen and the kickbacks that I alluded to that cause uh, drug prices to skyrocket. Uh, again, it's a conflict of interest when someone represents a buyer but is paid for by the seller of a service. It's just, it just doesn't work. What it does is it results in increased costs, and that's what we're seeing in the pharmaceutical industry as well as drug shortages. And my talk was on prior authorization, uh, educating patients about what goes on, why you are denied care, why you are told you need to get an x-ray before an MRI, um, even though the x-ray will not tell what I'm looking for and the MRI will. I mean, that's frustrating. Somebody's got an exam that suggests torn cartilage, and I want to get an MRI, I'm told that I have to get an x-ray first. Yeah, so I, I hear the my insurance company ends up paying for an x just because my orthopedic colleagues, my orthopedic colleagues complain about it all the time. They say it's crazy. I know this person's going to need MRI ultimately to figure out if you know what they need done because uh, they know it's truncarus is not you know osteoarthritis at age you know forty or something like that, and they they're forced to get these X rays and it's just an it's an unnecessary test and expense that goes against the fact that you have prior authorization, right? Delays care. I remember one patient I had that I wanted to get an MRI on his knee. Um, and it was denied, and he said, fine, it's denied. I'll just go to the emergency room because <laughs> my knee is killing me. And he went to the emergency room. That was approved. They ended up paying more for the emergency room visit. He ended up getting an MRI anyway, and it's like it's being, in some cases, you know, penny-wise and dollar-foolish. Right. Now, I understand when cost is the driving force. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. But there are times when the insurance company will pay – choose to pay for the x-ray and the MRI instead of the MRI itself. Yeah. They're costing themselves more money hurting patients in the process. That I don't understand. Intellectually, that, that boggles my mind. So um, what, are the, what are the responses from the – because I assume most of the people at the town halls are, are, are just patients. So what is the response the patients been when you describe these, these sort of uh, phenomena? Mostly it's their mouths <laughs> agape, their jaw drops. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. I mean, patients have no idea of what's going on behind the scenes that compromises the care that they receive. They have no idea of, you know, why I'm asking certain questions, not understanding it's because I have to put a check mark in one of several boxes mm -hmm. to satisfy an insurer. Um, they have no idea that for some insurances, if I do an injection, my reimbursement gets cut in half. Um, you know, there are hundreds of things that go on behind the scenes. I guess it's the same with any industry. If you knew what went on in the kitchen, you'd never eat in a restaurant again. <laughs> but they have no idea what's going on behind the scenes that affects their care. When I tell my patients about this and I talk about it in the exam room, they're stunned. They're literally stunned by what's going on. And, of course, they feel powerless. And the first question I ask them is, have you spoken with your legislator? Have you expressed your concern or your dismay or your contempt to your legislator? No. And the only way this changes is if everybody raises their voice together and gets this out and, and publicly. And if we educate the public, that's what the town halls are about, and encourage people to raise their voices to the legislators because they're also the only ones who have the power to change it. So that leads me to the next question. Um, why do you think patients are so... Uh lacking of knowledge of these sorts of things. I mean, in some ways, I, I launched this podcast for many of the issues you're talking about, 
to introduce people to direct primary care, to talk about main certification issues, to talk about the electronic health record, uh, because I, this is shows up for both physicians and for non-physicians, because I want to try and help everyone have a better understanding. Do you think just physicians for a long time were just like, hey, we're just going to grind through things and just not worry about it, and things will work their way out? just work themselves out or do you think, I mean, is there been a loss at some point or not on social media? What do you think the problems are? Well, I think one of the problems are that physicians are so busy just keeping up that they don't have time to, to do these kinds of educational type things. I mean, a study in the, in the annals of internal medicine a few years ago showed that physicians spend almost twice as much time documenting as they do in face-to-face time with patients. And that doesn't include the time they spend at home at the end of the day uh, documenting on the charts. Um, You know, when you think about what an office visit is, you know, it's greeting the patient, it's gathering information, it's processing that information, formulating a plan, explaining that plan, and then documenting. And you have 15 minutes to do all that. And what's happening is the documentation is taking up most of that visit. So now you, your time is cut in half to do the things you need to do. You don't have you know, much of a chance to exchange pleasantries and start explaining right. why things are the way they are. You're just trying to keep your head above water and, and not make your, your next patient wait an extra 10 minutes to see you, such that by the end of the day, you're an hour, two hours behind. Furthermore, a lot of physicians um, don't understand these issues. Yeah. They understand from the frustration level, but they don't understand about the kickbacks. They don't understand about what's going on um, in, it, you know, at a federal level in terms of some of the demands that are being placed on us on documentation. Um, they're, we're trained to see patients. Um, we're not trained to get involved in the, for lack of a better term, extracurricular activities. And I've always maintained that if you spend all day seeing patients, if you're in your exam room from eight o'clock in the morning to six o'clock at night and you've done a wonderful job with patients you haven't done your job because it's incumbent upon us to protect our profession and do the things outside of that whether it be write a letter to a legislator whether it be educate a patient whether it be support a political candidate whatever it is that helps protect our profession and our profession is going down the tubes it's being stolen from us um there are too many people who have a vested interest in physicians not being able to practice medicine independently, be it hospitals, be it insurers, be it government. And the net effect is going to be that physicians lose our autonomy, and we're already seeing it. So what, would, what advice would you give to both patients and then also physicians uh, and then uh, about prior authorizations to, to fix the issue, the problem, and then what exactly well, a couple of things, can, couple of things go need, ahead yeah, a couple of things need to happen with prior auth one there needs to be greater transparency i've spoken with you know medical directors of insurance companies and i've heard it from there and and there are some valid points there i don't want to be completely biased mm-hmm. there there are valid points there but when they tell me that you can just look it up on our website or a patient <laughs> can look this up if you go to the website it's gibberish yeah there's no way to find it so there needs to be an emphasis from insurance companies on um, educating patients, transparency. That's item one. Uh, Item two, there needs to be transparency in terms of um, why things are denied. Um, Not just it doesn't meet the guidelines. It it needs to be explained why this is why, why the guidelines are what they are. 
And that means that peer-to-peers need to go through a physician in the same specialty as the treating physician. Finally, my own personal belief is, as I said earlier, insurance companies need to be held accountable for um, the decision, the medical decisions they make, um, just as I am. Um, in that case, they're following the guidelines and it's a good decision. They're right on target. They're helping patients. They're making good decisions. But bad decisions, just like when I make a bad decision, you know, they need to be accountable for that. And as of now, they are not. So the the whole process needs to be streamlined. Um, and there, there was a bill in Pennsylvania to look at that, but it has not been passed yet. Um, basically, we need to raise awareness of patients, and patients need to raise their voice to their legislators and say, what are you doing about this? Why is someone who's never examined me, never spoken with me, dictating what treatment I can and cannot have based on guidelines that may or may not even apply to me? Right. And I think... Until that happens, we're stuck. And I I think patients have far more power than they think they do. Uh, I think, you know, where where patients fail uh, in in, uh, working towards the the legislatures is where they just are too broad and that's where they're the problems they want fixed, like just fix healthcare or, you know, if you don't have a, a specific solution, a specific problem, it's very difficult to legislate and fix that problem. But if you had a problem with like prior authorizations, there needs to be more transparency. Well, that's a bill. You can, you can envision sort of how that would, that piece of legislation can get through, but you need out, you need advocates outside of medicine. I think medicine can drive this, but we ultimately need the physician or the, uh, the patients to be a part of this as well, because Without their stories and without the ones who are truly impacted by these laws, I mean, we're impacted, but the the patients are the ones who they're the ones who are dealing with it, the, the delays and the the mistreatments. They're the ones who actually I have the the biggest impact at hearings and things like that with the legislators, because the legislators I don't think they really care about physicians. Um, ultimately, I agree. I agree, and many patients feel powerless. You know, when I tell them, have you spoken with a legislator, the thought never crossed their mind that they could act on this. Right, yeah. Many people don't know how to. So, again, it's up to us as physicians to educate our patients. But without a groundswell from patients, I agree with you 100%. This isn't going to happen because physicians complain about it. And the focus for physicians needs to be not on the idea that this hurts physicians or this is a burden to physicians. The focus needs to be on how this affects patients. Yes, this is all about patients. If you take care of patients, everything else will fall into place. I firmly believe that, um, and that's where the emphasis needs to be. Yeah, I'm into that. I think you know we we lose we we lose focus on that far too often. That we we're, just because we're frustrated, we forget that other people are the ones dealing with it as well. And so um, that's definitely something that we should we should spend a lot more time focusing. And I almost wonder too at, that if you're a physician who deals with prior authorizations. And the the results and delays that happen from it, you know, mention it to the patients every single time. You could almost have a handout. <laughs> you know, would say, "Hey, mm-hmm. this got this got uh, delayed two times. Here's a quick little thing about it, and what you should call your state rep and your state senator, because you know mm-hmm. you can call your congressman too, but that's unlikely to have much movement uh, from a national level. Because because uh, what really we want to change our insurance law and the insurance." industry is regulated through the states. It's not a federal um, regulatory mm-hmm. body. So, you know, no, you want changes, correct. it's through your state legislator. And, you know, if obviously you know it's a legislator, that's a useful way to get things fixed too because 
it's impacting you. So that's probably where one of those things where if you had something prepared and for as often as it happens, you'd certainly have plenty of opportunities to hand things out. It may be very helpful for physicians. Yep. It needs to be explained to patients one at a time, one at a time and encourage them to act. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about prior authorizations because again, this is something that I hear all kinds of docs complaining about. And yet <laughs> it's been really difficult finding someone who wrote a really good piece. The piece that you wrote on, on, uh, that I found on in LinkedIn. Um, I don't, I can't remember mm-hmm. when it was published. Was it, was it a web MD or it something? Was. Or, yeah. So that'll no, be it was published, published in a local newspaper here. Sure. And so that'll be a uh, link to the show notes page of the paradox.com as well as a link to your practice and a couple of the things you mentioned before, like the, um, the AMA survey on prior authorizations. I think people might find that pretty interesting to, and, uh, where else can people find stuff that you're working on? Because you're on like 27 boards when I, when I read through that bio. Uh, for me, uh, I mean, probably <laughs> too, too many to, to, <laughs> I probably go to the Pennsylvania Medical Society is going to be the best bet uh-huh. to get a lot of this information. That's going to be where a lot of this information on prior auth and scope of practice and a number of other issues that we're working on there. Um, that's www.pamed, P-A-M-E-D, Sock.org. And uh, do you Twitter? Do you put stuff up there? I am on Twitter, at, at LopatinMD. Okay. Anything else that you'd like to get in before we're done here today? No, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to, to talk about this. It's, it's you know, a burning issue. Um, it's an example of, of what's going on in medicine that... Um, the lack of trust in physicians, it's, it's one more example where uh, an outside entity says, basically says, we don't trust the physician, so we're going to take control of this. Um, so it's good to have the opportunity to talk about it and to you know, educate others about it. Um, and hopefully they will take action and speak to their legislators and, and maybe we can start a, start a movement. Yes. And if we don't start a movement, I think we'll just bypass it by just going to mostly direct primary care and cash pay services. And then really you don't have the third party person in the middle making those decisions for, for us between uh, the decisions that should be made between the physician and the patient, you know, or the, the customer and the provider of care. That, that solves the problem as well. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being on, Dr. Lopatin. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.